just ahead on Black Issues Forum, happy days are on the way as Governor Cooper loosens COVID restrictions. Racial reckoning reaches reality TV's The Bachelor. Are we ready for the tough conversations? And Congresswoman Alma Adams joins us with news about a campaign to protect the health of black and brown moms. Stay with us. Hello and thanks for joining us on Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. This week we're kicking off the show with one of our nation's lawmakers, Congresswoman Alma Adams. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Representative Adams. Good to see you. Good to be here. It's good to see you. Well, we know that you have been a strong supporter of an increase to the minimum wage, particularly in the $1.9 trillion relief package. But recently, the parliamentarian said that this would not qualify for inclusion in the bill under a reconciliation. Is this bill or this part of the bill going to need to find a new home? Well, we're going to continue to work on it, but uh, you're, you're probably right there. The parliamentarian has the final say there. <clears throat> but... Um, you know, I just wanted to highlight a few things. You know, it is a, a gradual increase uh, uh, to $15 an hour, but, you know, we have so many workers who uh, we've called essential workers and they don't have essential pay. They're still struggling. It's been a, a very long time, uh, 15, 12, 15 years uh, since we've had a raise in the wage. So it's still important to a lot of people, a lot of constituents, and a number of members of Congress. So uh, I just believe that, um, you know, we've got to change it. I've been working on this issue since uh, my days in the in the North Carolina House. Uh, it's been 725 uh, over a decade. That's the longest stretch in U.S. history. Uh, and that's poverty wage. And so we, we really, uh, this is the richest country in the, in the world, and we've got to do better than that. 27 million low-wage workers would... Uh, uh, get a raise in my district in, in uh, Mecklenburg, uh, Charlotte, it would mean uh, giving a raise to uh, working 80,000 women. So women are suffering uh, even more than men, particularly uh, with uh, this pandemic. So, Well, there's no uh, doubt that a minimum wage increase certainly would, would help out a lot of folks, but uh, there's argument as to whether or not belo it belongs in the COVID relief package. And as a matter of fact, a great bulk of the uh, COVID relief package is allocated to um, items that many would argue are not directly related to relief efforts. Um, what would you say to that? I mean, things like the student loan uh, and uh, employment benefits, those kinds of things are contentious right now. What are the areas of compromise right now? Well, I think they are. those things are contentious, but uh, they are all connected uh, with, uh, with relief. I mean, we're talking about folks who have lost jobs, uh, who are barely making the ends meet. Uh, we've been, uh, this is been going on now for almost, there'll be a year uh, next week. And so um, if you're not, um, if you don't, if you're not making money, if you don't have income, it's going to be difficult for you to pay the bills, pay your rent, pay your student loans and all those things. So I do see those things as related, uh, seriously related to, uh, to this uh, pandemic. And so um, you know, I guess it's a matter of how you interpret it. If you don't want to support it, then, you know, we're going to find all kinds of excuses. And, and that's pretty much what we've done. But uh, we'll be passing uh, uh, the package out uh, today or, or in the morning. Uh, it's my understanding. So I'm looking forward to casting my vote for it. Well, well done. Um, 
And another question that uh, COVID has brought up or at least brought a spotlight to is health for everyone. But you yourself have a new campaign and something called the Momnibus Bill. Can you tell us a little bit about that and black women's health? Well, first of all, uh, Momnibus is, uh, uh, is a, <clears throat> uh, we've just uh, uh, filed the uh, Black Maternal Health Momnibus Bus Act of 2021, which is a, a comprehensive package uh, of 12 bills that tackles one of the greatest public health crises of our time, and that's Black maternal health. Uh, with uh, black women uh, dying four and five times the rate of uh, other women. And so uh, with the uh, support of, of various coalitions, uh, healthcare providers, black mothers, policymakers, researchers, all of those folks, we have come together to uh, support this. Uh, the, uh, there are 12 bills in the Momnibus. We've added three initially when we started uh, last year, it was nine. Uh, we've added now the Maternal Health Pandemic Response Act, which is really uh, important because we are in a pandemic, uh, protecting moms and babies from climate change. Representative, uh, can you, Representative, can you tell me how the um, act would address uh, health equity issues? Okay, well, uh, we, we know that uh, women of color, African-American women uh, in particular, um, uh, really uh, don't have um, many of the, uh, the determinants. This bill will address the social determinants of health, uh, which in influence these outcomes, like housing, transportation, nutrition, uh, that, uh, th that show us uh, right now that many women uh, of color, African-American women in particular, uh, don't have all of the things that they need. They don't have the transportation. They're not uh, able to get to the doctor as they should and, and so forth. So all of these things uh, would help improve the outcomes for uh, Black women. We know that this pandemic has shown us uh, that the discrepancies and the disparities in health uh, that uh, many of our uh, folks already uh, have and uh, women, of course, are facing even uh, greater risk. So uh, this uh, uh, omnibus, in so many ways, with all of these bills, will address um, those particular issues. And women's health is definitely an important issue. We thank you for representing that. And thank you for joining us on Black Issues Forum, Representative Alma Adams. Thank you very much, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. COVID-19 restrictions that have been in place for close to a year are loosening. Businesses like bars and movie theaters can now increase their capacity, while some sports venues can seat more fans. But leaders warn this is not the time to let our guard down. We still have more than half of our counties in either the red or the orange. So while we're improving since our peak in January, we still have more work to do. Many people are wearing masks and social distancing and it is making a real difference. North Carolina's COVID-19 metrics are dipping after a post-holiday spike. And here to discuss this and some of our other sto uh, stories, we have WTVD reporter and anchor Tim Pulliam, Jessica Holmes, an attorney and political analyst. And we also have with us North Carolina Central University lecturer, Brett Chambers. Welcome everybody to the forum. Thank you, Deborah. <laughs> You know, let's Thank talk you. about let's talk about the loosening. I'm sure everybody is relieved. I'm certainly happy that things are opening up, but I want to talk about the sequencing and I'll open up with you, Jessica, the sequencing of events and just the real safety um, in doing so and the pacing of loosening things up. What are your thoughts about that? 
Um, there's no doubt that Governor Cooper has been very thoughtful and very cautious about reopening our state. Um, he's made very good decisions based on science and based on data. I think the most important sentence coming out of his most recent announcement is that while this is one positive step in the right direction towards normalcy, this is not the light at the end of the tunnel, and we still have very far to go. When you look at the fact that because of the shortage of the vaccinations, that and quite frankly, the pace that North Carolina is moving at, it will take months for the state to be, for those that want the vaccine to be vaccinated. Plus you have to account for the anti-vaxxers. Plus you have to account for the fact that, you know, some people may just not be interested, may just not want it. So not to mention the new variants, the new strains. So this is one step in a positive direction towards reopening and getting back to normal. But the mask mandate is still very much in place. People should still social distance. And we are by far nowhere near being you know, at the end of this pandemic. It's a step toward the right direction, the pacing, Tim. Um, what else should we know about this loosening of restrictions? Well, we know that bars now you know, are gonna be able to have more people in their facility. Uh, more people will be able to eat out in restaurants. Gyms can open longer. So we know that people are getting back to work is what this is gonna be about. Uh, but to Jessica's point, you know, we still have those anti-vaxxers. And so my job as a media person is to continue to encourage people, especially black and brown people in our community to get vaccinated so that these restrictions can get even looser. Yes, yes, um, and people are still, th th I can see a stronger effort to try to get people more comfortable with going ahead and getting those vaccinations. And Brett, you know, uh, there are some communities that have complained that people are jumping the line to get vaccinations and uh, that's kind of inhibiting some of the, the statistics for, for getting vaccinations to, to black and brown people. Yes, uh, I, I've, I've heard that quite a bit. I've read about it. Um, I know that I've seen even some people's Instagram accounts that they are showing that they got their shots. They, you know, like using a little song, shot, 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 they got it. And- um, You're sharing everything, sharing the most. Well, I haven't, I haven't had it and I teach. I go in front of students every day. And also to the uh, other point about the loosening of restrictions, um, I host an event every week where the, the part that Tim was talking about, uh, people can get back to work, is that people can get back to work and some people may be able to save their businesses. The restaurant where I hold my event, those people are just holding on and we're both trying to, we try to do it in a very safe manner, follow, follow all the restrictions, but the numbers are not there for us to really prosper or maintain. Like so, I'm doing this, I keep mine going because of my musicians and some and my crowd, my mm -hmm. audience, the people who have supported us. Mm -hmm. And the people come to the, the restaurant to support them. Because that couple, uh, Bill and Andrea, they're, they're, they're really working really hard to hold on to as many people as they can and pay them. So it's great that we're opening up a little bit, but even they know that we're still trying to look out for our, our customers our audiences, the people who support us. So it's good news, but everybody has to still be diligent and vigilant and, and maintaining the protocols that we need to, to, to do make this happen. And I get really concerned, Jessica, about um, how this might impact funding 
that's coming in. So things are looking real sunny. So biz, people are getting back to work, getting back to business. So that might be a, a groundwork for saying, we really don't need as much uh, relief at this point because things are, are opening up. I think that position would be a mistake um, because so much damage has been done to our economy, to our businesses. Um, as you know, Chambers mentioned, you know, some businesses may still be able to save themselves, but there's a reality that so many businesses are not in that position and have already failed and have already closed and have already laid people off. And we're still having challenges as it relates to the number of people who are unemployed. And, you know, we are really in for just a lot of fixing, a lot of addressing our economy, a lot of addressing getting people back to work, um, a lot of addressing um, particularly single mothers, for example, who maybe had to quit their jobs as opposed to being laid off due to schools not necessarily offering um, in-person options. So the damage has been done by COVID-19, and not only is it going to be a long process to getting everyone who wants a vaccination vaccinated, but it's also going to be a long road to recovery for our economy. Yeah. And failing to invest properly is only going to, to put that um, further down the road for us. And we want to get open as soon as possible, but we also want to make sure that we do it right. right. We got to do it right. It's definitely a long way to go. But I want to take us to something that kind of pertains to the racial reckoning and all of the conversations that we seem to want to have around race right now. The Bachelor is seeing a spike in attention, but probably not the kind that they'd want. This season focuses on Matt James, who is from Raleigh. He's the first black star in the show's nearly 20 years, but a recent controversy involving one of the contestants and the show's host is sparking even more conversation about race, and representation in pop culture. And my question, I'm, I wanna just throw it to, out to you to start, uh, Brett. My question is, this is entertainment. So are our expectations changing regarding how entertainers and even reality stars speak out on matters of race? Man, look, we want people to speak out. They speak out, they get attacked. Doesn't matter which side it's from or, I mean, so it's like, and, and, and as far as him being like the first black bachelor, there had to be a first one. We knew there was going to be some kind of uh, drama surrounding it. That's what the show is about, drama conflict. Um, I, think is, I think it's great that the converse is starting a conversation or continuing the conversation. Um, the, the entertainment, uh, the ABC, they, somebody said to me yesterday, because we were having a conversation about this, they said somebody had to already know be while they were doing their vetting because they their producers do a very good vetting job somebody had to know about all of this stuff before they got started so you think they let this kind of come out on purpose the the information I'll, about the young lady i'm not gonna let me just put it this way i'm not gonna speculate <laughs> but I, but you know you never let a good like crisis go to waste so wow you wow. know i mean that's that's a promotional and marketing thing it's like if it's going to come out, you're going to take advantage of it. But one thing it lifts up is, you know, are we ready to have these tough conversations about race? Because now the host of the show, Chris Harris, comes out, makes a statement. He's like, listen, these girls went to a party, had a good time. Tim, you know, you, I'm sure you're familiar with our own history here in North Carolina. We've had the Azalea Festival and our own Azalea bells, which have been eliminated, <laughs> you know, <laughs> since 2020. But, you know, where was there undue attention and criticism to Chris Harris? How 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 do you interpret that? 
Deborah, let me just tell you, I used to live in Wilmington and covered the Azalea Festival and was in, you know, shock at what I was seeing. So, yes, we definitely have a, a you know, a, a history problem here as well, North Carolina. To Brett, to your point, you know, Bachelor has already filmed. So, Matt James coming out with this statement, you know, the, the show has already aired. You know, we already know, he has already chosen his, you know, uh, the person he wants to marry. So it is a little interesting how this is all unfolding and he come, him coming forward. To your point, Deborah, looking at Chris Harrison and Rachel Lindsay have that back and forth. She was the, the previous Black Bachelorette. It was difficult to watch because she was trying to have a conversation with him in an honest place about how this would make me feel if I was a part of that. Who would I represent mm -hmm. you know, as a Black person if I was a part of that party? And then and he, he was dismissive. He, he was dismissive. And, you know, this show airs on my network, so obviously, you know, we benefit from it. But I think that these conversations have to keep habit happening yep. uh, with entertainers, you know, because we do look for, to, toward our entertainers as role models, unfortunately. Jessica, what are your thoughts about it? Um, I, I second what's been said. Um, Unfortunately, I wish we as a society did not look to entertainers um, for their positions. That said, anytime we can have an honest conversation about race in this country, um, we should certainly welcome having that conversation. And I would agree. It was a very painful interview to watch. I mean, he showed a very, Chris Harrison showed a very clear disdain for what he referred to as the woke police and referring to what he, you know, many people would call the cancel culture. But that said, I mean, the cancel culture is in place for a reason. And, you know, it's important that we have these honest conversations. And rather than being open to having that dialogue, he basically shut down and became very defensive and is an example of why these conversations have to happen and have to keep happening. Well, let, let me put... Let me put this question out there uh, so that we can wrap this up. But and, and, and thank you for the correction, Tim. The name is Chris Harrison. Um, we're having these conversations. And are people allowed to reveal something from their past and, and do better? Which is what it appears the young lady is saying that she did. She apologized. And are we OK with her apology and the fact that people may have done something as recently as last year and are trying to do better? Brett. We, we can forgive and move on and all that, but it's, there's going to be consequences. After it's out there, it's out there. Um, but I, 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 I want to not go on a tangent, but I do want to address, because what we're talking about is the cult of personality. And so it's the whole idea of personalities and the, and the celebrity, celebrity-dom, uh, the folks where our kids look up to, some of us look up to. You know, we ask them to, to speak out and be advocates, but when they do, we slap them down. I mean, we see that, especially in sports. So when people, and, and, and whether it's the athletes or the, the commentators, whether it's the contestants or the bachelor himself, if, if we want to have people speak out, then we have to give them room to have a conversation and be uncomfortable for a while so that we can come to some kind of not, not, not necessarily a resolution, but to start getting things out on the table. So the conversations need to be uh, had, and sometimes they are going to be uncomfortable. 
Yes, and speaking, speaking of race, um, in recent months and even recent weeks, we're hearing more conversations about how all of our students are learning about black history. A bill in the North Carolina House looks to add the Holocaust to the standard course of study, and that's led some to ask why we can't do the same for African-American history. In a recent article for NC Policy Watch, the Reverend Paul Scott wrote, quote, historically, African-Americans have been expected to be satisfied with partial equality. That same mentality has trickled down to today's educational system, where black children are given a Chitlin curriculum and expected to be happy, end quote. Jessica, you're shaking your head. <laughs> uh, tell us about this bill. I mean, first of all, is it a good idea to have this legislation out there to make sure that, that the Holocaust and items like that get included in the teaching? First, allow me to be very clear that I support um, House Bill 69, However, it is unfortunate that we are in a place where it is necessary to have to legislate talking about the Holocaust. It is unfortunate that we are at a place where we may have to legislate important parts of our history in terms of teaching black history. In North Carolina, we have so many just points as it relates to the civil rights movement, as it relates to the Jim Crow era. There's so much history right here in North Carolina that we aren't taught in our schools. It's unfortunate that we're here at this place, but we are here at this place. There's been debate um, at the State Board of Education as it relates to the teaching of black history. And my comment as it relates to our Lieutenant Governor Mark Johnson's position is that all skin folk ain't kin folk. But that said, um, I do support House Bill 69, and I do support, if necessary, legislation as it relates to teaching key components of Black history. Allow me to be clear, Black history is American history, and we should teach it accurately without whitewashing it. Right now, we hear more about W.E. Du Bois than we do Marcus Garvey, more about Martin Luther King than we do Malcolm X. And it's all we a part- We about the Black Panther Party as it relates to you know, open carrying guns, not for their social welfare programs like school breakfast. There's a lot to be known about black history and it's just not taught in the classroom. Tim, you know, share, share what, you, what you know about this bill and what your thoughts are about having to have this kind of legislation. Well, you know, we know that if it passes, it would go into the next school year, 2021, 2022 uh, curriculum. Um, you know, the News and Observer put out an article recently, did an investigation showing that Black history is not being taught adequately in North Carolina. And in some parts, it's non-existent. So this is an issue. I am a product of our public education system, and I didn't know enough about Black history, and I didn't know enough about the Holocaust. I get what Minister Paul Scott is trying to do. He's looking for equity, and he's asking you know, parents, black parents, to reach out to their legislators to demand that this part be in, you know, the bill. I get that. Um, will it happen? I don't know. I think that it would be good. I think a lot of people would support it. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is that we don't have enough experience and enough lessons taught on both. And I think somehow we have to figure out how to make that happen. Brett, do you think that this uh, this proposal should be expanded to include African-American history, or do you think there should be an additional piece of legislation that says, hey, let's be specific about African-American history? 
I, I think that we should have something that says we should teach accurate history wow. and inclusive history. I mean, what I, I've had the benefit and honor of interviewing John Hope Franklin. And he was like, he wouldn't have a job. One time he told me, he said, brother, I wouldn't have a job if they taught American history properly. Uh, so. Um, we can't even agree on the standard course of study and what accurate history means, though. Well, I mean, so inclusive. I mean, things and accurate things like 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 whitewashing, literally uh, whitewashing. We were talking before the show. It's like Christopher Columbus discovering a place that there were already people there, and then they get killed. So it's like that's like me coming to your house and saying, "Hey, look, I discovered your house. By the way, you're all dead." Bye. Um, it's, it's that same type of thing. My students just watched Black Power mixtape. Or the, and the Black Panther, Vanguard of Revolution by Stanley Nelson. Two comments that came out that was consistent. It was, how was it that the Swedish film crew for Black Power Mixtape got the American history more accurately, uh, presented it more accurately than anything they had grown up with? Some of them had never heard of Stokely Carmichael. Some of them didn't know about the, the feeding part of the Black Panthers. They only knew about them being gun-toting people which they were doing legally because Huey Newton knew the law. Um, so there was a lot of things that we talked about just yesterday mm -hmm. about this, th this very thing. And so the accuracy of the history, whether it's the Holocaust, internments, um, 1898 down in Wilmington, the Tulsa riots, I mean, the, the internment camps for the Japanese, we have all this, the destruction of the indigenous people that were already here. We have a lot of things in history that we need to have included that people don't want to have because it may upset some people. And not only included, breathe. not only included, but told from a different perspective because the story is going to be different based on who is telling the story. And certainly, you can get a lot of great information uh, and history right here in public television. Right. So That's true. As I'll long, as, as, lo as, long as the hunter tells, tells a story, the, the lion never wins. Well, we're talking about history and the infamous Wilmington insurrection is an important piece of black history in our state. 120 years later, writer and director Nelson Oliver is bringing the story to life with a docudrama called The Red Cape. It tells the story of a father and son trying to survive the ordeal. You can watch that on our North Carolina channel Sunday, the 28th. And with that, I'd just like to thank Brett Chambers, Jessica Holmes, and Tim Pulliam for joining us and for such thoughtful uh, insights as always. Also want to thank uh, earlier Congresswoman Alma Adams for joining us. And if you want to reach us on Twitter or Instagram, use the hashtag NCBlackIssues. You can also find our other episodes on pbsnc.org slash blackissuesforum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Thank you for watching.